It's a great pleasure to introduce Cecilia Twinch, who is a senior research fellow of the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society in Oxford. She studied modern and medieval languages at Cambridge University. Besides working as a teacher, translator and editor, she has lectured on Ibn Arabi and mysticism worldwide since 1990. She has had numerous articles published, many as chapters in Spanish books and journals. Her publications include an English translation from the Arabic with Pablo Benito of Ibn Arabi's Contemplation of the Holy Mysteries and a new translation of Know Yourself, an explanation of the oneness of being, Ibn Arabi by Lani. So, please, Cecilia, unmute when you're ready and start. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dee and Lucy. And I'm delighted to be here. Good morning or good evening, everyone, and greetings around the world. Uh, it's wonderful to see so many friends and newcomers. Um, some of you, it must be in the middle of the night. Uh, my talk this morning is on Julian of Norwich. And as I mentioned in my abstract, uh, those of you who are familiar with the themes in even Arabic thought will no doubt see many echoes in what was revealed to Julian. So the title of the talk is, All Manner of Things Shall Be Well. Julian's showings or, or revelations of divine love have provided a source of comfort and strength to contemplative souls and suffering beings since they were first composed in the 14th century. In the 20th century, the repetition of perhaps her most famous words echoed with a familiar ring in the unsettling poetry of T.S. Eliot's Little Gidding. Sin is behovely, but all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. For like Julian, T.S. Eliot sees behind humankind's suffering the all-powerful movement of love. Who devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. However, I must introduce Julian to those of you who have not previously heard of her or who have not read her writings before dwelling on some of the universal themes in her work themes which endure through time and transcend the particular set of beliefs she held within the culture in which she lived. Julian presumably took her name from St Julian's Church in Norwich, England, for it is known that she lived in an enclosed cell attached to this church as an anchoress, that is, as a woman who lives a solitary life in a fixed place in order to devote herself to spiritual matters. There's been a great deal of speculation about the details of her life, such as whether or not she was a nun herself or had been taught by the local Benedictine nuns. We know that she lived through at least three waves of the Black Death pandemic. But few personal facts about her life are known for certain, apart from those gleaned from her writings. She tells us 
that she was shown her revelations on the 8th of May, 1373, when she was 30 and a half years old. And we know that she continued to live until some time after 1416. She's also famously mentioned by Marjorie Kemp, another female devotional writer who dictated the first autobiography we have in English. She recounts how she visited the anchoress Dame Julian in Norwich in 1415 and received spiritual advice from her. In any case, Julian begs her readers not to pay attention to the poor, worldly, sinful creature to whom this vision was shown, but to eagerly, attentively, lovingly and humbly contemplate God, who in his gracious love and eternal goodness wanted the vision to be generally known to comfort us all. For it is universal, he says, and addressed to all, because we are all one. Despite being only a woman, ignorant, weak and frail, as she describes herself, Julian felt moved by love to record her vision for the benefit of others, and thus became the first woman that we know of to write in English. Just because I am a woman, she says, must I therefore believe that I must not tell you about the goodness of God? When I saw at the same time both his goodness and his wish that it should be known. The fact that Julian claims that she knows no letter has been taken literally by some to mean that she could neither read nor write, and indeed few women of her time were literate. Others claim that it simply means that she had no formal education or knew no Latin. However, whether she wrote the text herself or dictated it to an amanuensis it retains the easy style and rhythm of the spoken word and brings what was then the domain of masculine theological discursive thought into the domain of the feminine mystical vernacular. Her account of these revelations was the only work she wrote, but it has come down to us in two main versions, a short text and a long text. The oldest surviving manuscript of the short text was copied in the mid-15th century from an original dated 1413 and states that Julian was at that time still alive. The longer text, where she mentions that she was given further inner teaching nearly 20 years after the time of the showing, adds to some of the revelations and gives much fuller theological explanations. Julian begins her account of her vision by telling us that she had asked God for three gifts, that is, the vivid perception of Christ's passion, a bodily sickness, and three wounds. In the vivid perception of Christ's passion, she wanted to see in the flesh the passion of Christ so that she might have more knowledge of his suffering and the suffering of the Virgin and all Christ's friends who witnessed his pain. In the bodily sickness, she wanted to endure every kind of suffering, both of body and soul, that she would have experienced if she had died. She had prayed for this sickness in her youth 
and wanted to have it when she was 30 years old. Finally, the three wounds referred to the three sword wounds to the neck from which St. Cecilia slowly died, and which Julian characterises as the wounds of contrition, compassion, and an earnest longing for God. She tells us that she prayed for the first two gifts only on condition that their granting was according to God's will, for she was a little uncertain about them. However, the third gift, the wounds of contrition, compassion, and an earnest longing for God, she asked for without reservation. For whereas the two first two requests passed from her mind, the third stayed with her continually. In accordance with the revelation she later received about prayer, if you pray, then how could it be that you should not have what you pray for? Julian's prayer seemed to have been answered all at once. In 1373, when she was indeed 30 years old, she fell so gravely ill that the priests were sent for to administer the last rites. As he held the crucifix up in front of her face, she slipped into a state where she was at the point of death, and all the suffering of her body suddenly left her. She was then given fifteen showings, or divine revelations of love, which lasted from about four o'clock in the morning until well after midday. Then she returned to herself and her bodily sickness, realising with great weariness that she was obliged to live and suffer longer. Despite the intensity of what she'd seen in the vision, she now felt bereft of spiritual and bodily comfort. During the vision, she had fully believed everything God had told her. But now that her suffering had returned, she doubted and claimed that she had been delirious. After this, she became deeply ashamed of her own lack of faith and endured great terrors of the mind until the following night, when she took refuge in all she had been shown and she was again brought into a state of great rest and peace, where she received the sixteenth and final revelation. In this revelation, she was reassured by these words. Know well, now, that what you saw today was no delirium. Accept it, believe it, hold to it, and comfort yourself with it, and trust to it, and you shall not be overcome. Julian often refers to the revelations as a single vision, but within it she was shown successive sights. She states that the teaching was revealed to her in three ways. By bodily sight, by words formed in her understanding, and by spiritual sight. Although she adds, I neither can nor may show you the spiritual vision as openly or as fully as I would like to. Several of the revelations start by describing the physical aspect of Jesus' suffering on the cross. But although the passion of Christ is the initial focus of the revelations, there is a constant shifting from the suffering of the flesh to spiritual bliss. The first revelation begins at the time when Julian believed she was at the point of death, 
and her suffering was lifted. It occurred to her to ask God for the second wound, since she wanted Jesus' pains to be her own, with compassion and then longing for God. The vision starts with blood trickling down from beneath the crown of thorns on Christ's head, for in accordance with her first request to see in the flesh the passion of Christ, she was shown all the gory details. These may rather provoke feelings of revulsion in us today, yet bearing in mind both the age in which she lived and the sanctity of the blood of Christ in the holy sacraments, we see from her lengthy descriptions of the blood pouring out that the vision was, by her own admission, both horrifying and awe-inspiring, sweet and lovely. She writes, The beauty and vividness of the blood are like nothing but itself. It is as plentiful as the drops of water which fall from the eaves after a heavy shower of rain, drops which fall so thickly that no human mind can number them. For her, the flowing blood represented the washing away of sin and merciful relief from suffering. What she saw was inevitably according to her own belief system and prompted by her physical state. Yet within this vision, which was so significant to her in her personal situation, she was shown meanings and observations which she rightly recognised of being of value to all. But at the same time that she saw this bodily sight of the crucifixion, she was shown a spiritual vision of God's intimate love for us. This extraordinary juxtaposition of physical suffering and spiritual elevation in the Passion clearly echoes her own state when she writes, I saw that for us, he is everything that we find good and comforting. He is our clothing, wrapping us for love, embracing us and enclosing us for tender love so that he can never leave us, being himself everything that is good for us. Within this vision of intimate love, she saw that everything that exists, exists through the love of God. And marvelling at the greatness of the Maker, she was shown the littleness of all that is made. She describes this in the following way. God showed me a little thing, the size of a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand. And to my mind's eye, it was as round as any ball. I looked at it and thought, what can this be? And the answer came to me, it is all that is made. I wondered how it could last, for it was so small, I thought it might suddenly disappear. And the answer in my mind was, it lasts and will last forever, because God loves it. And in the same way, everything exists through the love of God. Along with this awareness of God's love for his creation, Julian emphasised that the creature should not let what is created come between them and their maker. We need to know the littleness of all created beings, 
and to set at nothing everything that is made, in order to love and possess God, who is unmade. This is the reason why we do not feel complete ease in our hearts and souls. We look here for satisfaction in things which are so trivial, where there is no rest to be found, and do not know our God, who is almighty, all wise, all good. He is rest itself. God wishes to be known and is pleased that we rest in him. When a soul sets all at nothing for love, to have him who is everything, then he is able to receive spiritual rest. At this point, the Virgin Mary was shown to her spiritually in a bodily likeness. She observed in what reverence Mary held the greatness of her maker in comparison to her own littleness, causing her to say the Magnificat in all humility. Julian perceived that this humility made Mary more worthy than all that is below her, which was this little thing made, no bigger than a hazelnut. In the third sharing, Julian again is shown something very small, but this time in her understanding, for she saw God in a point, and in seeing this, she saw that he is in everything. She saw that he is in the centre of everything, and that he does all that is done. Not only did she see that God does everything, but that everything that is done is therefore necessarily well done. So she was taken beyond the realm of human action to see that, in fact, God is the only actor and that all his works are wholly good. Here, she was caught between attending to the vision and her own amazement that no sin was evident. She could not help wondering, what is sin? And this is a question which keeps arising throughout the revelations. Yet in this vision, no sin appeared, and she accepted the perfection of God, acknowledging that everything was set in the order in which it would remain forever before anything was made, and nothing of any kind will fail to conform to this. Julian saw that everything is in its proper place, its centre, and that all is already as it should be. She writes, God showed all this most gloriously with this meaning. See that I am God. See that I am in everything. See that I do everything. See that I have never stopped ordering my works, nor ever shall eternally. See that I lead everything on to the conclusion I ordained for it before time began. By the same power, wisdom and love with which I made it. How can anything be amiss? Intermittently, between the great comfort and joy that such knowledge gave to Julian, she still felt separation, accompanied with a great yearning and longing to be united with her Lord, the object of her love. As she herself admitted, she saw him, yet she sought him, 
She had him, yet she wanted him. She felt that the only thing that kept her from him was sin, and thought that if sin had never existed, we should have remained in our original purity. Then Jesus assured her that sin is befitting, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In these words, she saw a marvellous great mystery hidden in God. Yet in so far as she understood the tenderness with which they were spoken, she took them to mean that although it is true that sin is the cause of all suffering, God does not blame us for this. Rather, he only feels compassion for our suffering. She realised that sin has no real substance or existence and can only be recognised at all because of the suffering it causes. Yet, she says, the suffering is only something transient, for it purges us and makes us know ourselves and pray for mercy. However, one of the wounds she'd asked for was contrition, which involves the acknowledgement of and hatred for past sins, together with a desire to make amends. She considered that it's necessary for people to acknowledge their sinfulness, for which they deserve punishment and anger. Yet in her vision of God, she saw no sin and she saw no anger, but only goodness, life, truth, love, peace. For his loving kindness does not allow him to be angry, nor does his unity. For through his own goodness, our soul is completely united with God, so that nothing can come between God and soul. So after the clarity of what she'd been shown directly, she became greatly troubled by thoughts and doubts, and prayed most fervently, Ah, my good Lord, how could all be well, given the great harm that has been done to humankind by sin? When one considers that the emphasis in the medieval church was on a paternal God of justice, might and wrath, whose stern punishment of hellfire and eternal damnation was to be greatly feared, the overriding compassion and intimate concern evidenced in the vision must have been all the more overwhelming. She observed that the way mercy works, protecting, tolerating, reviving and healing, all through the tenderness of love, demonstrates a quality that belongs to motherhood, which we shall examine in more detail later. Julian has to make a great effort to reconcile what she has shown in herself clearly and directly by God with what she has received outwardly through the teachings of the Holy Church. She dearly wishes to accommodate her vision within the accepted teaching for her own sake, whilst at the same time she is required to find some kind of interpretation which will protect her from charges of heresy 
that would prevent her writings from being preserved at all. At a time when lollards were being burnt at the stake, Wycliffe's versions of the Bible in English were banned, and anything which could be construed as theological teaching by a mere woman was highly suspect. She had to tread very carefully. Among her frequent formal protestations that she never wished or intended to deviate in any way from the teachings of the Holy Church, she is generally seeking a way of situating her certainty that everyone will be saved. And this within a framework where it is a point of faith that only Christians have a possibility of salvation, and from among them, only those who live a truly Christian life. From what she was taught to believe by the church, therefore, it seemed to her impossible that all manner of things should be well. But she acknowledged that if we spend our time grieving over evil and other people's suffering, we cannot find peace in the contemplation of God. She contents herself by accepting that she should not seek to know anything except what God wishes to reveal to her and by trusting in the answer he gives to her questioning. He tells her, What is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall keep my word in all things, and I shall make all things well. Nevertheless, Julian continued to wonder how it could be that a soul that sinned grievously and deserved to be blamed was no more blamed by God than if we were as pure and as holy as angels in heaven. The answer was given to her in the form of a parable, which she found so mysterious and baffling that it was omitted altogether from the short text of the Revelations. Nearly twenty years after the time of the showing, she tells us, she was still pondering on the meaning and receiving further insights. In short, the parable concerned a lord, and a servant. The Lord, whom she understood to be God, sat in dignity, clad in blue, alone in a wilderness of barren earth. The servant, who she understood to be Adam, representing all humanity, stood waiting reverently before him in an old toil-stoned white tunic, ready to do his will. When the Lord lovingly sends him away to do his bidding, the servant rushes off eagerly and in his great haste falls into a muddy ditch where he is badly hurt. He groans and moans and writhes, but is unable to get up or help himself in any way, turning his sight from his Lord and paying attention only to his own senses. He continues in misery, suffering seven torments. Julian observed that the servant did not seem to be at fault, however, since he had only fallen in his haste to do the Lord's will. Similarly, the Lord does not blame the servant, but outwardly regards him with loving pity and inwardly rejoices at the rest and nobility that he will bring to the servant through grace. In this way, the servant's fall and misery will be changed into glory and bliss. The servant seemed to represent not only Adam, 
but also Christ. For all the goodness and strength in the servant came from his divine nature, and all the weakness and blindness from his humanity. In this way, Julian considered how Christ was sent in the robes of humanity to free Adam from guilt and restore him through grace to his rightful place in heaven, dressed in glorious colours as God's crowning joy. Julian concludes that God made man's soul to be his own city and his dwelling place, the most pleasing of all his works. Once man had fallen into sorrow and pain, he was not fit to serve that noble purpose, and therefore our kind father would prepare no other place for himself but to sit upon earth waiting for mankind, who is mixed with earth, until the time when, through his grace, his beloved son had bought back his city and restored its noble beauty with his hard labour. Julian believed that if only we could see the loving beneficence of our Lord and the way in which we appear to him, we should, through grace, attain partial peace and rest on earth and full bliss in heaven. As far as our sin is concerned, she saw that it is its own punishment, for she says, I saw that only suffering blames and punishes, and our kind Lord comforts and grieves. He always considers the soul cheerfully, loving and longing to bring us to bliss. From her direct encounter with these loving and merciful qualities, Julian puts forward her concept of God as mother. She writes, God is our mother as truly as he is our father, and he showed this in everything, and especially in the sweet words where he says, It is I, the power and goodness of fatherhood. It is I, the wisdom of motherhood. It is I, the light and the grace, which is all blessed love. It is I, the trinity. It is I, the unity. I am sovereign goodness of all manner of things. It is I that make you love. It is I that make you long. It is I, the fulfilment of all true desires. She was not the only medieval writer to refer to God's motherhood, but she develops the idea extensively and in several different ways. In her struggle to make her direct experience fit in with the church's teachings on the Trinity of Father, Son and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, the qualities of each person of the Trinity inevitably overlap. Within the Holy Trinity, which represents three aspects of a single God, the feminine aspect is identified with divine wisdom. She explains, In our making, God Almighty is our Father by nature, and God All Wisdom is our Mother by nature, along with the love and goodness of the Holy Ghost. And these are all one God, one Lord. And in this binding and union, he is a real and true bridegroom 
and we his loved bride and his fair maiden, a bride with whom he is never displeased, for he says, I love you, and you love me, and our love shall never be divided. As the second person of the Trinity, the feminine aspect is also identified with Christ, through whose mercy, she writes, we have our reformation and restoration, and our parts are united, and all is made perfect man. For although Julian describes a trinity where God the Father is our creator, God the Mother has mercy and pity, and our Lord the Holy Spirit gives help and grace, all of these qualities are simultaneously seen in the motherhood of God. She explains, I understood three ways of seeing motherhood in God. The first is that he is the ground of our natural creation. The second is the taking on of our nature, and there the motherhood of grace begins. And the third is the motherhood of works, and in this there is by the same grace an enlargement of length and breadth and of height and deepness without end, and all in his own love. The qualities of motherhood, such as giving birth, nourishing, providing, protecting and caring with tenderness, tolerance and patience are brought to life in examples of Christ's role in our spiritual birth. The feminine in Christ is also emphasised in relationship to his mother Mary. Julian first mentions this at the point where her own mother, standing by her bedside, lifts her hand to Julian's face to close her eyes, for she believes she has died. Again, without making explicit any parallel with her own situation, where her mother is apparently witnessing the death of her child, Julian relates how she is next shown part of the compassion which the Virgin Mary had for Christ on the cross. She writes, For Christ and she were so united in love, that the greatness of her love caused the intensity of her pain. For just as her love for him surpassed that of anyone else, so did her suffering for him. She considers that Our Lady Mary, who is mother of our Saviour, is mother of all who will be saved in our Saviour. And our Saviour is our true mother, in whom we are eternally born and by whom we shall always be enclosed. This description of Christ as mother reminds me of a mosaic of the Dormition of the Virgin on a wall at the Church of St. Saviour in Kora, also known as the Karyajami, in Istanbul. The familiar image of Mary, Mary the mother, holding the child Christ, is reversed. For here Christ is holding the pure soul of his own mother, as a baby in his arms, and both of them are enclosed in the presence of the Holy Sophia, or Divine Wisdom. Julian acknowledges that she is unable to convey all that she was shown, for the difficulty of communicating direct mystical experience in words is well known. Yet in her account of the revelations, she manages to convey all the endeavour of humanity to reconcile the inner perception of perfect truth 
and bliss, peace and love with the failure and suffering of everyday life. In the midst of her own suffering, close to death and tormented by fiends, she journeyed within herself to a place of expansion and repose. She writes, Then our Lord opened my spiritual eyes and showed me my soul in the middle of my heart. I saw the soul as if it were an endless world, and as if it were a holy kingdom. And from the properties I saw in it, I understood that it is a glorious city. She understood that our soul can never rest in things that are beneath it, for in the perfection of the eternal present, she had already seen that God does all that is done, and she saw no sin, and she saw that all is well. However, when she became aware of the unfolding of things within time and relativity, in the descent from that perfect state of harmony to an awareness of opposition, God gave her a revelation about sin, and then he said, All shall be well. This seems to refer back to the vision of the small thing, the size of the hazelnut, representing all that is made. For insofar as God has created anything, that creation is entirely enfolded in compassion. But insofar as the maker of all contains everything within himself, God, is, God himself is unmade, and all that is made is brought to naught. Then, nothing less than God who is all can satisfy us. So that Julian was prompted to say, God, of your goodness, give me yourself. You are enough for me, and anything less that I could ask for would not do you full honour. And if I ask anything that is less, I shall always lack something. But in you alone I have everything. Finally, Julian continued to ponder on her vision, longing to know more of its meaning. And 15 years later, she tells us, she was given further illumination in the following words. Do you want to know what your Lord meant? Know well that love was what he meant. Who showed you this? Love. What did he show? Love. Why did he show it to you? For love. Hold fast to this, and you will know and understand more of the same. But you will never understand or know anything else from it for all eternity. Thank you. And you see here, um, Mary, who it's the door mission, which means she's fallen asleep, is now um, accepted within the Catholic Church that her assumption, she was taken up um, by the angels. And here is Christ uh, holding her pure soul as a baby within the Vesica Piscades uh, or the Mandola. And this sign here of the Vesica Piscades, as we know, is, is that circle 
is the circle like the the round ball of the of the little hazelnut, but that it is is changing to male and female. So we have two interlocking circles, and in this intermediate space is like a portal to the transcendent. It's also often identified with the holy Sophia or the divine wisdom and that pure reps, receptivity that Mary herself represents as the receptacle of, of uh, the Christ and as the container of the incontainable. So um, thank you everyone for your attention. <laughs>